So first, I'd like to thank you all for being here, uh, Eve, whether or not this is your regular meeting or not. Um, my name is Josh. I am visiting from Brooklyn, New York, Brooklyn and Vass. I have been a teacher at uh, New York Comerbos for the last nine years, and I'm here. Uh, in LA meeting with uh, teachers from the Against the Stream community, with, which is our sister uh, Sangha, and uh, very much we're all in the same lineage and fold, and um, Noah and Pablo regularly come and teach at our uh, groups. After this, I'm driving up to uh, Spirit Rock for a retreat. So, um, <coughs> uh, Craig, who's a wonderful friend I haven't seen for a while. Um, so, um, before I give my talk, which I threw together this morning, uh, I'm just going to say homage to the Buddha for a second. Namo tasa bhagavato arato sama sambuddha Namo tasa bhagavato arato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arato sama sambuddhasa. Buddhandaman sangan namasami. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. It's just a way that I pay homage to the Buddha uh, and the Dharma and the Sangha. Um, so the first part of tonight's talk is going to be a little bit heavy on the psychology. Forgive me, I do that. I like to drop in the neuroscience, the clinical psychology, the continental philosophy, and then in a last-ditch desperate attempt, I bring in the Buddhism to make it sound like uh, it's all legitimate. So uh, pretend that this is all the normal stuff that you hear uh, against the stream. Um, so <coughs> we all have... Um, the brain has circuits to keep us alive. We have circuits to uh, find food, connect securely with others, to find shelter, to run when we're scared, to find, um, <clears throat> to sustain the right amount of liquid and all that. There are all of these basic core survival needs have circuits. And when something threatens or activates a neural circuit, a survival circuit, what happens is we uh, develop feeling states. The Buddha called it Vedana. Uh, neuroscientists just use the word feelings for when we feel something, uh, a kind of activation. We're on alert. Something has scared us or we see somebody that with whom we feel an attraction or a sense of arousal towards, or we might feel trapped, we might feel insecure. Uh, infants are constantly being uh, activated. The mother simply turning away from an infant can activate a sense of abandonment and threat and vulnerability. Uh, and then <clears throat> that can be restored by the mother turning back, holding the infant, picking it up, developing a sense of touch and reassurance. So um, emotions are different from feelings. Feelings are just the um, 
inevitable, very quick uh, states of being activated, and they will feel comfortable or uncomfortable. If there's fear, very often it will be discomfort. If there's a sense of uh, something is attractive or reminds us of something that brought us security, it might make us relax. There might be a, the activation might be one of ease. Emotions are actually messages. They're signals. They let people around us know that we've been activated, that we've been, some, some survival circuit has been set off. And this is important because human beings have what's known as um, biosocial brains. Um, we are pretty much set up to develop security by seeking contact with other human beings um, to, um, you know, uh, come into a, what's known as an attuned, um, emotionally mirroring relationship. Which means if, for example, I feel threatened in life financially by a group of people, by uh, a perceived fear, what will happen is first I'll be activated, I'll feel Vedana, discomfort, and then an emotion, which is a signal to both myself and to you that I'm in a state of alarm, will happen. This is why almost all emotions are registered in the front of the body, the face, um, the throat, the shoulders, the chest, the stomach. Uh, all of these run by a specific nerve that's connected to the sympathetic nervous system and also the insula, which lets us know when we are activated, when we are upset, when we're in fear, when we're alone, when we're vulnerable. And so we generally look, uh, especially in infancy, we look when we are emotionally activated for someone to deactivate us, to reassure us that we're safe, that somebody has our back. And so as infants, or when we're young, we turn to caretakers. In the best of all possible situations, if I'm activated and I was very young and I looked to my mother, she would give me a gentle touch. She would uh, empathically uh, connect, which means she would understand my emotion and she would mirror it back. She would give a look of concern and then a smile to say, I know that you're terrified, but I'm here. It's going to be okay. So successful mirroring, being touched, being in proximity, feeling secure, these are the ways that we deactivate when we are um, emotionally uh, in an activated state. Now, what happens when that doesn't happen? <laughs> sort of my specialty. I, I'm a Buddhist counselor as well as a, a um, Dharma teacher, and a lot of the talks go in this direction. So what happens when we reach out for secure connection, for empathy, for love, for attention, for all the things we need from caretakers and for, from the individuals that we turn to for security, what happens when that's not met? When it's rejected, when it's shamed? Well, what happens is the emotional energy is repressed. The activated state is 
in essence, pushed below awareness. That doesn't mean that the Vedana has disappeared, that the, t- the tight stomach, the short breath has gone away. It means that the mind pulls awareness away from the activated state. In other words, I'm terrified. I've looked to my mother or my father for a sense of security. They've shamed me, rejected me. They weren't too narcissistically involved in their own shit. Any of this sound familiar, whatever. Uh, They were not there to return the touch. And so what happens is I have a choice. I can either go and feel these feelings, which are terrifying, for an infant. They're very vulnerable feelings. Or B, I can do what the psychologist Winnicott calls create a false self. I go off into a story, La La Land, the dissociative episode, telling myself or creating an inner fantasy where I've taken care of. I can mentally leave the picture. I'll do anything, basically, to not feel the physical vulnerability and fear that's letting me know that I'm feeling vulnerable, because I haven't been deactivated. So a lot of these, I'm only using right now negative, but sometimes these activated states are libidinal, sexual. They can be desire. They can be a yearning for connection. And sometimes we can have our sex urges shamed by our parents or by the people around us, in which case those two will be repressed. So we can repress fears, negative emotions, and we can also repress desires that are not well tolerated emotionally by our parents. So there can be, by the time we enter um, school years, a lot of repression already going on. Now, in life, we develop a, a whole bunch of what's known as emotional states and drives and desires that we begin to realize uh, over a period of time are just not that popular with our parents. In my family, they loved humor and they loved, you know, they loved confidence. But uh, anger, not so good. Uh, Any kind of uh, feeling overwhelmed and lack of confidence, not so much. Didn't really want to hear about that. Uh, and so I learned very early on in life to uh, dissociate myself from those feeling states, those emotional states, and to constantly seek a diversion in the world so I wouldn't have to feel those energies of false self stories. Uh, I had a rich fantasy life. I was everything from a, you know, from the, the brief period of time where I liked sports to uh, almost. Mostly, I wanted to be in the Beatles, basically. I, I, I wanted to be John Lennon. And so, um, uh, and then it, that turned into other musicians, Tom Waits at one point, you know. So, uh, what happens so when we feel these repressed fears, emotional states, and desires come up? Well, this is interesting. Anxiety. Anxiety is not a fear of things that haven't happened. Anxiety is the fear that an emotional state that we've trained ourselves to get rid of, to not allow ourselves to pay attention to, is returning. As Freud said, anxiety is not about the unknown, it's about the known and the fear, the return of the repressed. 
So we are, when we are in anxiety, it's not because we are uh, frightened of uh, some unforeseen thing. It's because at the lower level of awareness, something is coming up that we are familiar with and we feel unsafe when we're feeling those feelings. We might feel, some people get anxiety around their desire. If we've been, uh, if we have uh, same-sex desires and we've grown up in a homophobic environment and those desires come up, they'll very often be greeted with anxiety. If we grew up in a family where it was not allowed to be anything other than aggressive and confident and we feel feelings of of um, insecurity or, or confusion, when those feelings come up, what will we feel? Anxiety. The anxiety is, once again, I'm an infant about to lose love connection. I'm about to face annihilation. So uh, when we feel this anxiety, there's generally two ways it plays out. Uh, we can go into avoidance. If you, if you grew up with really narcissistic parents or parents that were really shaming and rejecting, when you feel desire or, feel, or fear, you'll immediately go to the furthest thing away. You'll, try, you'll use drink, drugs, anything to, uh, to try to get rid of that feeling state from coming up. You'll desperately clutch. On the other hand, some of us, and, and we all have both, by the way, nobody is purely one or the other, but... Very often, the other way is when we feel unsafe feelings and desires coming up or, or feelings that we felt uh, abandoned or lack of attachment. When they come up, what we'll do is we'll get into what's known as a repetition compulsion. This means, ironically enough, we will find people who represent the exact caretaker who shunned and rejected us and try to get the love that we didn't get back in our childhood from these symbolic representations. So, for example, uh, in my childhood, my mother was very, very loving in certain situations, but extremely uh, physically remote. And so I, for a while, chose women that had exactly that attributes, and I was trying to get touch and caress from women that were extremely dismissive physically. And so the question becomes, why? Like another example would be a woman that uh, grows up with a cold, dismissive father. And so she uh, feels a need for validation. So she looks around the world and starts dating cold, dismissive men. Anybody experience this? Maybe not. All right. Trust me, it happens. Um, so if the problem in this scenario is if she finds a cold, dismissive, avoidant male and he continues to reject her, she'll stick at it. That's the nature of repulsion, repetition compulsion is that we keep trying to get orange juice from the hardware store. It's been, it's been uh, in... Uh, embedded in the right hemisphere of the brain which sets up relational expectations and monitors our relationship with others will keep going back to the same rejecting, abandoning, avoiding person because that was the map that was ingrained in that as a template into the right hemisphere of the brain specifically the uh, orbital frontal region but you knew that so I don't <laughs> alright 
So, uh, the problem with repetition compulsion is that um, it creates the same results. And, of course, if she finds a partner who is now, who at one point was cold and rejecting, but then warms to her and gives her love, she will lose interest in him because he no longer represents the father and the love that he gives her will no longer address the core original abandonment that she's trying to fill. So it will be unsatisfying. Also, we tend to bring the exact same strategies in repetition compulsion that we used in childhood to try to get love in adult life, and we tend to wind up having the exact same results. So the question becomes, from a Buddhist perspective, what do we do when we find ourselves either trapped in addictive avoidance strategies, alcohol, internet, Facebooking, posting, uh, shopaholics, you know, the moment we feel loneliness going and shopping for, uh, you know, releasing the dopamine, shopping for another sale or posting another selfie on Facebook, looking for love and the inter- internet or, or B, we go back again and again to people that don't treat us with love and kindness. So what do we do? So there are a bunch of strategies that work. Traditionally, in these spaces, Buddhist spaces, the first and, the, and, pro, and generally the, the primary uh, method that's proposed is creating a safe container where we can feel a, an unsafe desire or, or emotional state to arise but rather than repress it or act out on it by looking for deactivation from somebody who won't really meet our needs, this, the proposal, and it works, is to mindfully feel the Vedana, feel the arising of the physical somatic expression of need, of fear, of anxiety, of of. Uh, of loss, of sadness, of grief. Feel what's present. Be with it. And rather than falling into the pattern of pushing it down by seeking a diversion or a distraction or trying to gratify it in ways that don't succeed, we just create a container where this energy can arise, it can be held, and eventually with enough uh, meta practice where we say I love you, keep going, I love you, you're safe. We can basically um, hold this energy, this need, this drive and then it, it passes. And um, the, the psychologist Alice Miller, I don't know if you know of her wonderful writer, but she wrote that in uh, any healing environment what happens is the child that was abandoned Returns and asks for the love and security that it didn't get. And that's what we're doing ourselves in mindfulness practice. So one of the things I do when I've gone through any experience that feels activating or unsafe or really that leaves me feeling uh, really uh, disappointed, as I said, 
I hold the image, and I don't go into the story, and I just hold the image of the event, the person that I've found to be wounding or whatever, and I'll just ask myself with my eyes closed, okay, what needs to be felt? What needs to be felt? And I'll just hold the image and just keep asking very emotionally wet questions like, how does it feel to be abandoned? How does it feel to have people not return a call or not show compassion? And eventually I'll feel the expression in the body and I'll hold it and I'll allow it to arise and allow it to pass. So that's one practice that really, really works. I would propose, though, that um, it's not the only practice and there are other practices that are really worth exploring. We are here part of what is a Buddhist community and you are surrounded by people who are much more compassionate and tolerant and patient, the chances are, than a lot of the people you grew up with. And so, rather than going back again and again to the wrong places for release, repair, uh, for uh, nurturing, for kindness, you have available to you people here who you can bring the raw emotional experience you're going through in life without hiding it, without disowning it. And we can once again take the risk that was so unrewarded at times during childhood and early life, and we can express what's present. Now, this is a very risky thing, because we've all experienced rejection. We've all experienced abandonment, shaming at times in our life where we've felt that uh, we've been told by other people, in essence, that certain emotional states and needs and desires are incorrect or wrong. So to once again take the risk to express um, true, the rich array of human emotions can be very, very risky. Um, and these are the emotions that you'll never see on TV or in a Hallmark card or they're never the ones you're expected to feel. You know, for instance, uh, you're in a new relationship and everybody goes, oh, that's great. And you, you go, yeah, you know, yeah. But really, you're like the other part is like, I feel trapped. I feel scared. I feel I'm, 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 I'm about to be abandoned. I'm about to like say something wrong. I'm being judged. I'm blah, 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 blah. And we're only allowed to say, yeah, <laughs> you know, so that um, the problem there is that there's no authenticity, honesty, or anything developed by saying the expected. By saying the rewarded all the time, by saying the socially approved, nothing happens emotionally that's growth. The growth always happens by going into and reporting the unexpected, socially unrewarded things that are real, that are present. And that's what we need each other for. So that when we're uh, going to a social event and we're not really up for it and, you know, it's Christmas and everybody's supposed to be, you know, really happy about it and we can feel like, oh, I hate this, you know, or we can feel like, oh, I'm going to a party and I hate performing and I feel, I feel like I'm not, I'm going to be judged because everybody there is rich and I don't have a lot of money or everybody there is, um, you know, they're all models and I'm feeling withered and old or they're all whatever. 
we can report those feelings and open to them so that we're not re- once again <clears throat> repressing, disowning, running from dismissing, uh, hiding uh, from our um, these emotional states of act that have been activated. On the other hand, what we're not doing, though, is the other flip side of constantly running to people who are going to abandon us. Because the, the thing about having a sangha or a community is that you can continue to ask for, for um, mirroring, for empathetic attunement from others until you find it. If somebody's too busy or they can't relate or they don't know what you're feeling, as an adult, we can as we practice, get to the point where we don't bring that childhood fear of, I'm going to die, you know, if, I, if somebody rejects it. We can, we can develop that, what the Buddha called um, uh, Bariya, effort. Keep on trying, keep on reaching out, taking that risk. You know, I'm not feeling uh, happy right now. I'm feeling lost in life. I'm feeling um, confused. I don't know what to do next, I'm at an impasse. All these things that, you know, nobody wants, you know, they, you're walking down the street or you're going into a place where people know, and they go, how's it going? And, you know, you, everybody's supposed to say, fine. Yeah. If, you, if, you, if somebody says, how, how's, it, how's it going out there? And you go, well, I'm feeling a little lost in my <laughs> feeling of hollowness in my chest. I feel my throat. I go, Ugh. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so this is where we do that. This is where we, um, we make that. Now, finally, there are sometimes traumas or experiences of rejection that are so difficult that we might need to be open to working one-on-one, sometimes with a therapist, with a Buddhist teacher, with a, uh, you know, in some kind of setting. And that's available, too, but I'm not here to really sell that. I'm here to just say that that's always a, available to you as well. If you get to a place where the material is just so, um, you feel so unsafe about it, it feels so difficult to express and share that you need, uh, that you don't feel you can open to other people, just know that it's there. Know that there will be people that will hold and receive this Material, no matter how difficult or ugly or unwanted or uh, unsafe you feel, you can find a place where you can go. Because at the end of the day, we don't want to have our lives be completely uh, programmed and our self will taken away by early experiences. We can, we can heal. It's available. So I thank you for listening. I hope there was some uh, something in there somewhere that was worth uh, your time. And um, 